Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lydia Staggs, Senior Veterinarian at SeaWorld Orlando. Today, we're going to be talking about Dr. Staggs' journey and determination that allowed her to pursue her dreams of becoming a veterinarian, as well as highlight some of the great disaster response work that she's been a part of. So let's get started. Hi, Dr. Staggs. Welcome to Aquadox. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited. We met when I was visiting SeaWorld and we hit it off right away. You showed us the manatees. It was spectacular. So I am beyond excited to keep talking to you today. (laughs) I'm excited too. I'm glad you enjoy the manatees. They're adorable. And maybe we'll get to the manatees later in our conversation, but let's start off with, can you tell our listeners kind of how you got your start in this field? I am the typical, I got to meet a dolphin when I was seven years old, but I was from a landlocked state. I'm from Kentucky. And so that was a big deal to to meet a dolphin. And so this little landlocked state girl from a farm was just like, I'm going to work with dolphins. And everybody thought I was crazy and insane. And I went to Eckerd College for undergrad in St. Pete, Florida. And my degree was in marine biology. And while I was there, part of Eckerd, the really cool thing about this school is that you have to volunteer. So I volunteered at Moat Marine doing dolphin rehab. And I was so inspired by that. And I was like, I want to do this. I want to rehab dolphins. I want to fix them and I want to return them into the wild. And, and so my advisor was like, well, you don't want to be a marine biologist. You want to be a vet. And I went, don't vets do just dogs and cats? And he's like, no, <laughs> they don't do just dogs and cats. So he introduced me to the SeaWorld vets actually. And I got to take a field trip over to SeaWorld and meet the SeaWorld vets. And I'm like, okay, I want to do what they're doing. So I continued to volunteer at Moat. And I applied to one veterinary school and one veterinary school loan because Kentucky doesn't have a vet school. They have a contract and I didn't get into vet school my very first time. And I was crushed because I'd never gotten rejected from anything, but it it turned out to be the best thing ever for me because I took a year off. And in that year, I worked at the Cincinnati Zoo with their manatees. And then once I finished that internship, I actually did the advanced internship at Disney at the Living Seas. And Disney Animal Kingdom had just opened up and they didn't have a vet student internship yet. And so they knew I was interested in going to vet school. I had applied again. I applied to multiple schools this time. I was much wiser. And they let me tag around with them and follow them. And they taught me all this stuff. And that year I got into every vet school that time. And so that kind of opened up those doors, those opportunities for me later on when I was applying for jobs or applying for externships. So from there, because of that experience for a year in between college and vet school, I was able to do so much more. And once I graduated, I actually graduated without a job. I was interviewing. And so I was in school with somebody whose dad was Forrest Townsend. And Forrest Townsend is one of the founders of doing wild dolphin health assessments. And so he was like, hey, my dad is looking for somebody. And I'm like, okay. So I went and I interviewed with Dr. Townsend. He's like, you want a job? And I went, 
yes, please. So he goes, I don't know how much dolphin stuff we're going to do. So he has a small animal clinic. And so I worked at his small animal clinic. He was a consultant for two small aquariums. And so I would go and I would do those aquariums with him and help see animals and things like that. And then when he went on wild dolphin health assessments, he drug me along and he's like, Hey, this is Lydia. She's my new vet. She's interested. She wants to do this. Let's teach her things. And so it was just an amazing opportunity. He taught me everything I know, wonderful man. And he was just like, you really need to know small animals. I know you want to do aquatics, but you really need to hone your small animal skills. And I'm like, okay. And he was right. But I continued to work for him part-time. And one of those small aquariums called Golf World hired me as a part-time vet. So I'm doing part-time aquatics, part-time dog and cat mixed animal practice and did that for 13 years. I ended up being full-time at Golf World, and then I would do one day a week at his clinic because I just still really loved doing dogs and cats, and I had some clients that I absolutely adored. And eventually in 2017, through the wild dolphin health assessments that I was doing, SeaWorld recruited me and said, hey, we really like what you do. You've done a lot. We want you to come work for us. And so then I came to work for SeaWorld in 2017, and I brought some of my unique perspectives to the workplace. I try to treat all of the trainers like my clients, like I used to treat my small animal clients because they have a say and they're so critical in the caring of these animals and they have a lot invested in them emotionally. And so I want to sit down and I want to get their opinions. I want to talk to them. And that's so critical to that. And I know they don't own the animals, but they are the ones taking care of them on a day-to-day basis. But now I'm at SeaWorld. I love it. It's great. And so, yeah, that's my story. (laughs) What an amazing story. I'm hopeful that, you know, you got a job at health assessments. I'm going to health assessments. You know, maybe, maybe I'll get a job. It'll be great. You know, I'll fall after you. Sounds like a great plan. (laughs) The health assessments are wonderful because you get to meet everybody all over the country because everybody comes for them. I'm beyond excited, but I want to just touch on something that you said, because you said that you brought a unique perspective to your work now at SeaWorld and other than treating trainers as clients, I was wondering what other things that you might consider within that realm. Ooh, that's a good question. I try to approach it as a team mentality. And I think more vets are doing that now that it's not just, Hey, I'm the vet. I'm going to dictate the decision. The other thing is, is that when you're taking histories from a client, the more you ask them, the more you get information but you're like, your tech will go in and ask them and then you go in and ask them and it's almost a completely different story. So that's one of the things that I ask a lot of times, the same question to about six or seven different people. And I am finding I'll get the complete story doing that. And they really are like, oh, we've never had somebody ask me before what our thoughts were or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, let's do a team approach. You know, it's not just the supervisor. I want to know what the apprentice trainer saw. What, what did they see? What did the senior trainer see versus the curator or the uh, supervisor? Because everybody has a different way of looking at things. So I want all of the perspectives. And that helps paint a picture of what this animal is doing because there are eyes and ears. And then the other thing is when you're explaining to clients, you're explaining very technical things in layman's terms. 
And sometimes we get caught up as veterinarians using all these big terms and we kind of get lost in our head and stuff like that. And so I'm very used to doing that. And so I will sit down with the team and say beforehand and after we do a procedure, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're going to do it. Do you have questions? I'm not scary. Please ask me and establish that rapport with them. And then afterwards, I'm like, okay, this is what I saw. This is what we're going to do. This is what I'm thinking. What questions, what do you think? And having that openness and that willingness to sit and talk to them and talk to them on a one-on-one basis, using terminology that they get, not trying to be hoity-toity and talking above their heads actually gains their trust and also a better rapport. And then they're more willing to come to tell me things that they might otherwise be like, eh, that's dumb. I don't want to bother the vet. No, come tell me, come talk to me about it. That is all just years of doing small animal. I think that's some really great advice. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm externing or internship or something is I always go up to the techs and I say, Hey, I'm not a vet now, but I will be what do you want me to know now? And I find that it's some of the best advice I get. And it's really helping me shape how I'm going to approach my job in the future. The biggest thing it's try to live by the golden rule of treat everybody how you would want to be treated. And I try to do that. And, and nobody wants to be treated lesser. And when you show respect of I don't care if you're scrubbing buckets all day, that is a very important job. And I respect you for doing it. And it is a huge part of the caring of the animals. And also food. I have candy at all times in my office and anybody can come get it and they know it. And I'm like, oh, you're going to come get some candy. Hey, how was your day? Talk to me about you. How's your kid or how's this? I try to get to know them on a personal basis too. That's awesome. And as that person who has scrubbed many a bucket um, (laughs) and prepared many a fish, duly appreciated. And I wish I had candy on those days. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, let's move on. I know that another really important time for you was 2010, before you got to SeaWorld, when you were still doing a lot of work with the small animals and working at Gulf World. So do you want to orient our listeners a bit to what was going on for you then? Okay, so 2010 started out with 126 turtles that were cold stunned, ending up on my front door of Gulf World. But the cold front, it was the coldest cold snap in the state of Florida in like 100 or something years. And so we have 126 turtles the first day and then 200 turtles the next day. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. And they just kept coming and the temperature was not warming up. And I'm like, this is really bad. And by the end of it, it was 1,801 cold stun turtles that we got alone up in the panhandle. Now, the rest of the state of Florida got over 4,000 turtles that year. But our facility alone took in the most, 1,801. I was the only vet. We converted our entire staff. We had all the mammal people helping us. And we had volunteers come in. I actually called Eckerd, one of my professors at Eckerd, and he brought his students up to help us with triaging all of these turtles because every turtle had to have a physical. Every single turtle had to get tagged and get fluids. And the most critical got blood work and radiographs and CTs and things like that. So that was overwhelming. That was all hands on deck. I remember We got donations from the community. People were bringing us kiddie pools and coming and doing laundry for us because there were so many towels and sheets and everything like that. So the community of Panama City really pitched in and it was wonderful coming and helping out. So 
when you have 1,801 turtles and only one veterinarian and you need to do physicals on all of them, is that something that you had to lay eyes on every turtle and then you tell someone, okay, it needs these fluids, these medications you give, I'm going to move on to the next turtle? Yep. We literally had an assembly line of turtles. They would bring them in. I would scan the turtle, make sure they didn't have fibropapilloma, which is a virus that causes tumor-like lesions all over the skin and sometimes internally in green sea turtles. This is mostly green sea turtles. We had some Kemp's Ridley sea turtles and a few loggerheads, but the greens we had to scan for this virus. And if you touch them, it's transmissible to other turtles. So we set up a triage where they were collecting the turtles and they would scan them real fast and say, okay, this one does have fiber papilloma. This does not. And they would group the fiber papilloma turtles and not transport them together and they would transport them last. And then the clean turtles or the ones that lack visible fiber papilloma would come first, but I would still screen them to make sure that they didn't get in and mix with other turtles that did not have visible pap lesions. And so, yes, literally everyone got a physical for me. And then I had a scribe, somebody just sitting there writing down and we would put a piece of painter's tape onto the turtles. And eventually we put marker on them to identify each turtle, but that turtle got a number. And then the person scribing would go and we would dictate orders. And then I had other people giving fluids and we had bags of fluids just hanging everywhere. And so they were just, this is how much, this is how much, this is how much you're going to give this. And they would go around and just give fluids. And that's how we managed to do it. It was an assembly line. Wow. What's the timeline on this between you got a bunch of them in just a few days. And then how long did they stay with you? So we got turtles in for nine days and then most of them were with us for another week. Once the temperature warmed up so we could safely return them, we wanted to return them a little bit deeper into the Gulf. And so we requested the support of the U.S. Coast Guard and they came with their big ships and we loaded them in little kiddie pools and they took them out. And then they literally had a little slide and we're just releasing them into the water on a slide and return them. Now, those were the ones that could be released quickly. So in the state of Florida, you have acute cold stuns, which is different than what you would see in New England. They get chronic cold stuns where they're colder for a lot longer and they have a lot more chronic disease and severe disease. Acute cold stuns really don't have that many issues. So there's a quick turnaround. There were a few that had other issues as in I found foreign bodies that they had ingested. So I had to do surgery or they did develop secondary pneumonia or they just weren't doing well. The ones towards the end of the nine days, those were a little bit sicker animals. So they stayed with me and we released the last turtle. We were so proud. We released it April 11th of 2010. And then the BP oil spill happened April 20th of 2010. And they went, yeah, you're going to have to be a major triage facility for this. I was like, oh, that's, that's a lot of turtles that are probably going to come in and we're going to have to de-oil. Wow. So they called you and basically drafted you for the government response? So they alerted us. There's this whole command thing that automatically forms. So in a crisis, the government has this emergency plan for oil spills. You have somebody who's in charge, who's the person, and there's this web of all these different areas and fields. We knew the BP oil spill, obviously it happened and you're seeing it in real time on TV and automatically they're like, okay, we need to assemble. We need to start doing this. 
we're going to come in, we're going to educate you, we're going to send these people down from the DEA and the FDA and everything to train you how to handle decontamination and how to keep yourself safe. They started ordering the proper personal protective equipment or PPE for you to have. And so they gave us all of these things. Now, all of the stuff that you're supposed to wear to protect you is really hot. This is end of April, beginning of May in Florida. So they had to build these air conditioned tents for us to treat the animals because it was not safe for the people. You have to protect the people too in dealing with this. So you had these full, almost hazmat suits. You had to wear certain gloves. You had to wear masks, respirators. I was pregnant at the time. So I actually had to have more advanced training to deal with all of this. And that was the challenge because I was like, um, what do I do? You guys, I'm pregnant. What, what are the safety precautions? Everybody's like, oh, we don't know. And I'm like, well, let's <laughs> do the maximum protection for me. Then. Wow. That's wild. So what animals were you seeing? Turtles. Unfortunately, the dolphins that we had were deceased. So we would do necropsies on those to gather evidence. That was the other thing I learned about. I learned about evidence collection and chain of custody and all the things that you had to do because you're gathering evidence for this disaster. And so you had to do it the right way and log it correct because there were legal ramifications to that. And so my name is on a lot of signatures. It made me kind of nervous. I'm like, okay, I'm signing that I was the one who collected this sample. And now I am turning it over to this person and they are signing it. So, you know, your name and your reputation is on the line that you've done these things. You are swearing that you've collected this. So tell me about the turtles. So we would get in turtles starting 12 o'clock in the afternoon. So they would go out, they were using vessels of opportunity. So all these fishermen are out of work because they can't fish because there's oil and you can't have people consume any of the fish. So the government hired them and BP hired them to go out and look for turtles that were covered in oil. And there were researchers and veterinarians and scientists that were on the boats too, making sure that they were collected correctly. So they would bring them in and two shipments. So the first one would come in about one, two o'clock in the afternoon. But then the next group wouldn't come in until nine, 10 o'clock at night. And you're de-oiling these turtles and you're making sure they're okay. And you're collecting the blood, you're, you know, triaging them. And then the next morning you've got to get there and take care of the ones that you've already had brought in. And so you're there at seven, eight o'clock in the morning. Now, remember we're doing this and we still have all the ambassador animals, the animals that still live at Golf World there too. I'm still just one vet and I'm splitting my time. So I was working 18 to 20 hour days and eventually I did get help. (laughs) So I did have other veterinarians come and help. Dr. Andy Stamper came, Dr. Craig Harms came, Dr. Shane Boylan came. I was very thankful, still very thankful for all of their help. But all of the animals that came in, we did not lose a single animal and every animal got returned to the wild. So that was awesome. That's super amazing. Yes. I'm curious though. So when you're bringing in these turtles and you're getting the oil off of them, you know, we see on TV that it's just Dawn soap. Is that what you use? We used Dawn soap. That was a lot of it because they were ingesting oil. We would give them manhain oil, which is a fish oil. So it would bind to the oil that they had consumed. And then yes, we would spray them down with some Dawn soap and rinse them off and get them clean. And then when you're talking about release, Obviously you couldn't release them into the same spot because there was oil there. So what was that process like? 
That is all where the researchers and the biologists, this is where everybody works together because my forte is not knowing where the migration patterns are of sea turtles. I deal with individuals. So that's where they had all these turtle experts and because of the age of the turtles and then the season that it was, we were able to release them in a different location because it was a different time of year at that point. So that was really cool. Everybody working together to figure out where's the safest place for us to release these turtles. So obviously this is one of the biggest oil spills that we've dealt with. So as you were doing more of the clinical management of them, were there any big research questions that came to your mind about what long-term medical issues that were going to be anything that you were particularly interested in? The biggest thing that I was interested in was how is this going to affect them long-term? What's going to happen? I wasn't the only one who was asking that question. The government and the National Marine Mammal Foundation started doing dolphin health assessments in Barrier Bay, Louisiana, starting to look at these dolphins and seeing what happened with the health of the animals over the years. And I am lucky enough that they want me on to come and help. And so I started doing that 2011 and I go out with them every single time that we do it and help collect samples and help monitor. And it's very interesting to see what has happened with those animals and see some of the the consequences of what happened with the oil spill. And it's an interesting story because I can come back now to SeaWorld and say, you can see our ambassadors here at the park, but let me tell you about the wild ones. Our guys get top-notch care. You know, they get a little scratch and they've got a vet coming to look at them. And there are wild dolphins that have tumors growing in their lungs and have lost all of their teeth because of the exposure to oil and have eye lesions and stuff like that. And you look at the animals that you're caring for and you're like, okay, I'm doing right by them. And I know that they're safe and I'm going to do everything I can to keep them safe too. No, I'm glad you talked about looking at the long-term effects of this. And for anyone listening who might be more interested in that, on episode 52, Why Dolphins Need Salt, you can listen to Dr. Ryan Takashita discuss his research looking at the changes in salinity there and those effects on dolphins. And then you can also check out episode 12, Stethoscopes for Dolphins, where I talked with Dr. Barb Linehan from the National Marine Mammal Foundation when she was looking at cardiac assessments of these dolphins. So super cool research. Well, your work with the disaster work is super cool and we could talk all day about it because I know you've had other cases where you worked with animals after Hurricane Katrina. So we'll have to do another episode in the future. But before we close out this episode, I really want to take a moment and talk about your work currently at SeaWorld. Working for SeaWorld is a dream come true. I really believe in what the company stands for, what the company is trying to do. It's a theme park, yes, but it is a zoological facility. It is an aquarium. We have the largest rehab program, not in the country, in the world. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And it makes me sad that they don't know that of all the amazing things that SeaWorld does in all the the areas and lives it affects and touches. Everybody knows the ambassador animals. They know the killer whales. They know the dolphins, the sea lions. They know the shows. And and that's wonderful. And, And that tells part of the story. Those are people coming to love these animals. And even for me, I've never seen a killer whale in the wild. I am a vet at SeaWorld and I've never had the opportunity. I've gone out multiple times. I've never seen a killer whale out in the wild, but I get to see killer whales every single day. And I love them and I want to save them out in the wild because I get to see them every day. And that's the connection 
that I want people to have, that they come, they fall in love with the animals and you only say what you love. And if you have no connection whatsoever to these animals, you aren't going to care what happens to them. And so there's that aspect of SeaWorld and the conservation education messages that they have. Then there's the rescue portion that is amazing. And, and the manatees, we are the largest critical care facility for manatees in the state of Florida. Scratch that. We are the largest critical care facility for manatees in the world. And seeing these animals and seeing how they were affected by human interaction and bringing them in, being able to fix them and fix what happened to them and then returning them back into the wild so that they can live another 10, 20, 30 years. That is so rewarding. And that again is an amazing aspect of my job. And we do sea turtles and we do birds and dolphin rescue and returns. And when you come to SeaWorld and you pay the admission price to SeaWorld, part of your ticket goes to pay for all of this stuff. And SeaWorld spares no expense. If we say we need to do this and it's going to cost $10,000, nobody bats an eye. They're like, all right, we're going to do it. Right now, there's an unusual mortality event going on with manatees in the state of Florida. So the other critical care facilities are at capacity. SeaWorld's capacity is 40. That's what we're supposed to be able to take. And you're like, oh, 40, that's a lot. It is a lot, but that's nothing compared to the animals that need to come in. And so what SeaWorld did, they said, we need more, let's double it. We're gonna make our capacity eight. So in the last three weeks, they have gone out, bought pools, had the entire teams stop what they are doing, brought contractors in, built these pools, had water quality, plumb all the pools, and we are putting manatees in tomorrow into these four new rehab pools for this UME so that we can take in more critical care animals. Because if we can't take them in, the option is to euthanize them and nobody wants that. So we don't want to shut our doors. This is what we're going to do. And they're like, we don't care how much it's going to cost. We're just going to do it. And that is so amazing that I work for a facility that's like, all right, let's spend the money. We need to do this. And they just do it and they do what's right by the animals. And that is refreshing and amazing that I have a job that it's not about money. It's about the animals and it's about what the animals need. And I think that's one of the amazing things about working at a facility such as SeaWorld where, you know, everyone always wants to do the best they can for the animals, but we've had episodes on this podcast where, you know, all they had was a bucket and, you know, if they're trying to anesthetize a fish, Emma's triple two, she didn't have money to send out for diagnostics, just kind of whatever. And what you're saying is we're willing to go construct new pools to go take in more manatees because we care about their health and well-being. Like that's just, What an amazing message. Yeah, that is so amazing. I got to brag about one other thing. We do have the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund. That is our nonprofit that people can apply for grants. We give huge grants to like bright whale stuff, but then we also give grants to small rehabilitation facilities that might just have a bucket to do their veterinary work in. And it's all over the world that they give this money to. And it is millions of dollars that they have donated. And it's a hundred percent of whatever is given to the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund to grants and facilities and stuff like that. SeaWorld itself, the organization covers the overhead 
you know, when you donate, there's always a percentage that is overhead. No, SeaWorld covers that so that 100% of the donations can go to the facilities that need it. And I know firsthand how amazing that program is. Last year when I was working with Hub SeaWorld, which I know is an off branch of the SeaWorld that you're working for, they're funded by that. And we did you know, wild dolphin rescue and necropsies for those that were dead. And, you know, that was an extraordinary program and amazing team that I worked with, with Wendy and Teresa and Agatha. And this fund is able to help them continue to do the great work that they do. Yes. You know, we're making a difference. We just don't talk the talk. We walk the walk. And that is important to me philosophically that we don't just say, oh, you need to do your part, blah, blah, blah. No, SeaWorld does its part too. And that means a lot to me. Well, I know everyone wants to hear about the orcas. So tell me a little about the important aspects of your work with them. Just being there is an honor. Okay. So my first day at SeaWorld, I walked into Orca Stadium and you know, went up next to the habitat. I kind of fangirled it a little bit. I was like, oh, it's a killer whale. You know, I, and I'm trying to be cool. I'm, I'm like, I am a vet at SeaWorld. They've just hired me. I do not want to embarrass myself. But internally, this little girl was just like squealing up and down because I'm two feet from this massive, beautiful animal. And it was their physicals. We do physicals on them monthly as part of their preventative healthcare program. And it was, I was like, I'm touching it. I'm touching a killer whale. I just was so awe inspired and I have not lost that. Every time I walk in there, I get, I don't know, it's this feeling. I, I can't even describe it, but it's just like this joy. It sparks joy. And I do that with other animals too, but there's something impactful with, with those whales. It, it means a lot. And it, the other thing is, is that they're all healthy. They look great. And then I hear and I read about the pods off the coast of Washington, and it makes me so sad when I see how skinny they are and how emaciated they are and how they're starving for food and that calves are not living because they reproductively just can't handle it because of all the environmental impacts. And I get so upset by that. And I look at the guys here and I'm like, okay, you guys are safe and you're healthy and yay. Okay. Although there was one calf sighted this year. There was one calf sighted this year. I'm very excited. Like that's a triumph. I'm like, yay. And it's exciting. And whenever the government or people in NOAA asked to do research with the whales, we have an IACUC committee. It has to, to be reviewed, but I got to be a part of that where we were taking blubber measurements via ultrasound. And so I'm ultrasounding the killer whales and then we're taking girth measurements of our killer whales. And then we can weigh our killer whales. They go up on a scale. And so we knew how much they weighed. And so they used all of those things and all of those morphometrics to then look at those whales and say, yeah, they're not okay. This is where they are body condition wise. This is where they are. But they had a dead one, you know, girth measurement wise. So they were comparing that and being able to use our animals to compare what a healthy killer whale should look like to the ones that are in the wild and say, all right, we need to fight for these guys. We need to get them more food. We need to do stuff and, and put more pressure on certain agencies and, and certain things so that we can protect those guys in the wild because we're showing that they're not healthy. And so that's just another important role with these animals that 
we have them and we have all this data and all this blood work and all of these things. And anytime there's ever an animal in the wild, dolphins, killer whales, sea lions, we have what normal should be like. We know what medications, if they need medications, we know the doses. And so SeaWorld is happy to share all of that information if an animal needs it in the wild. And we do freely. And how awesome is that? It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Dr. Staggs, thank you so much for being here on Aquadocs. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadocs. I'd like to thank Dr. Lydia Staggs for being on the show this week, our sponsors WAVMA and AAFB, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadocs news. And if you've got an extra moment, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.